Welcome to Revealing Men, conversations that pull back the curtain, revealing the inner lives of men. I'm Randy Flood, psychotherapist and director of the Men's Resource Center of West Michigan. Well, I'd like to welcome Jonathan Couchy to the Revealing Men's podcast. Thanks, Jonathan, for coming in. Oh, for sure. Thank yeah. you for having me. Well, well, we can appreciate the universal challenges for any human to face a physical disability. Uh, Jonathan is here to talk with me today, particularly about the unique challenges um, some men grapple with when faced with a physical disability. Jonathan is 32 years old, lives in Wyoming, Michigan. <clears throat> He's newly married and has a daughter who's about one years old. And she just turned one uh, Tuesday. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Big birth, birthday party there? Or? Yeah, Saturday, trying to get that house clean and <laughs> don't know how I'm having that many people in my house, but we'll there find out. <laughs> so when Jonathan was 12 years old, he, he lost most of his eyesight to a rare condition known as Lieber's hereditary optic neuropathy. So yes, this necessitate, necessitates that Jonathan has to use that infamous white cane that we see most times. So... Um, he he began working in disability services for you've been doing it for ten years about you said it feels like it yeah okay okay um, as you've been in the with disability services for ten years but then as a staff member for like six uh, disability <laughs> advocates I've been working there for be seven years in May nice and before that I was working at the Bureau of Services for Blind Persons through the state of Michigan okay okay. So he, he spent the first five years at Disability Advocates working <clears throat> with youth from 14 to 26 on a workforce development and independent living skills. And currently, he's working in community education, where he trains others on disability awareness. Yep, do guest lectures, uh, corporate trainings. Nice, okay. So he hosts a small podcast called Flattening the Curb, so we can you know, make sure that we get that out there. Is how, how long have you been doing that? Uh, on and off for about a year now with yeah. uh, my colleague at the office. We put down, uh, really try to highlight stories about the work organizations are doing to support individuals with disabilities okay. and create a platform for individuals with disabilities to tell their stories and really get them out there because nice. there's so many misconceptions about Okay, that's people. like an important podcast. I'll have to check that out. So last year, Jonathan began working part-time so he could be a stay-at-home dad. So that's pretty cool. Yep. So so here's some interesting biographical facts about Jonathan. The past year, Jonathan was a semifinalist in the Kingpins of Comedy competition to cap off his first year of doing stand-up comedy. So you better make me laugh while we're talking. Uh, I'm going (laughs) to self-promote that I have a show on March 8th at the Special Olympics uh, Michigan facility on Division Avenue. Okay. Uh, I will be opening for DJ Demers, who uh, has been on America's Got Talent and uh, was on Fallon. So wow. I'm really excited. He is That's a comedian awesome. who's also got a disability. He's hard of hearing. So you're going to get blind jokes. You're going to get some deaf jokes. <laughs> okay. It should be a good thing. Okay. Sounds great. So he's a youth camp director for sports education camp and has been involved with the camp as a staff for 16 years. In high school, um, he was a varsity wrestler and in college played rugby. That's an intense sport. Um, in his limited free time, he enjoys reading and gaming. So let's just jump right into the deep water together. Um, how about you talking, Jonathan, a little bit about your journey as a young man 
who not only wrestled and tackled other men, but was forced to wrestle early on with your life in your life with a physical disability. So it was definitely an interesting process because I did wear glasses uh, when I was about 10 years old for nearsightedness. And then one day I remember waking up thinking, I can't find my glasses anywhere. And my parents kept on reminding me, you're wearing them. Uh, and there was just little things that I kept on noticing. And the day was August 24th in 2002. It was two days before middle school started, four days before my 12th birthday. Wow. So going around, I'm messing up everything. My dad was furious at how I cut the grass. <laughs> oh, no. um, not in a straight line or what? <laughs> there was not a single straight line. And as he would say, there was more mohawks in the grass than my head. I was a punk rocker back in the day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but just making messes, spilling things. Uh, I remember playing charades uh, with my family, and I'm trying to read the card. And all I could read was the last couple letters was Ella. And my family will not let me forget how I acted out Cinderella, pretending that I was an umbrella. <laughs> okay. Uh, so we we just kind of came to that conclusion of maybe I needed a stronger prescription. Okay. Uh, we went to Sears Optometry the next day, and they dilated my eyes and went, "There's something seriously wrong. You need they to get said, him." Sears and Robux said that right there on the spot. Yeah. Huh? Wow. Uh, they they dilated my eyes, got a look inside, and went, "You need to get him to the hospital." Wow. Well. Was that pretty alarming for you? Is that at the, I, to I mean, that? of course, they tell me this right after they dilated my eyes, which makes your vision worse. <laughs> right, right. So uh, I'm in full on panic mode. Uh, but we we go to a hospital that shall remain nameless. Okay. And after 16 hours of basically being bounced from waiting room to waiting room, being seen no longer than like a couple minutes by anybody, uh, we finally see their head neuro ophthalmologist who basically tells me, eh, there's something a little off, but it's within a normal range, and sent us home. Okay. And we kept on going back for further tests, and one of the most impactful moments was he asked me to leave the room so I could speak to my mom in private. Yeah, that wasn't going to happen. Right. I, I twisted that doorknob, I pressed my ear up against it, and I heard what he told her. Oh, you did. Yeah, he told her uh, he thinks it's hysterical blindness and gave her vitamin C pills and eye drops and told her to give them to me and presto change your vision back. So hysterical blindness would be that there's some kind of psychological underpinning to it? Or what does that mean? That, that was the thought. Yeah. Of he couldn't identify anything physically wrong with me. So then he just assumed. Yet a Sears okay. optometrist could instantly. Right. Um and basically was telling my mother that I was lying and making it up. My Get the kid therapy, give him this placebo, presto changeo, he can see again. He probably just doesn't want to go to school. Yet I was begging my parents to let me go to school. Middle school just started. I had a locker now, I had electives. It, it, something I was kind of excited to go do. And I missed the first two months of school. I felt like my doctors didn't believe me. My parents didn't know what to believe. I really felt like an outsider right. and a freak and no nobody I could trust. So what that diagnosis did gave you the opposite of what you really needed in, yep. that, in that moment. Uh, it was about 
six months later, we finally got a second opinion at a hospital I'm mm. glad to name, and that is U of M Hospital. Okay. The doctor there looked at me, went, there's something wrong. It's either A or B. A blood test will determine it. Got the blood test, and after six months of struggling through school, of not knowing what's going on, got a diagnosis that I am legally blind due to Right. My optic nerve deteriorating. Wow. So then how did you begin to kind of wrestle with that when you looked at the life that you were living at the time and kind of the vision of what you wanted to live? And then all of a sudden you had to reconcile that with this disability. I mean, I was one of those kids that like from the age of 10, I had like a countdown of like how many days until I could take driver's ed. Right. Like my room when I was 11 years old was decked out in NASCAR and Ford and Chevys everywhere. Of like cars were something I was so excited for. Just finding right. out that that's gone. I played uh, travel team <laughs> baseball. I could no longer see the ball when it was coming at me. Right. That thing would magically appear right here, and I don't have <laughs> enough time to catch it. Right. I got enough time to flail. And then everyone kept on saying, oh, he's afraid of the ball. I'm like, no, (laughs) that ball is magic. Right, yeah. Uh, It was a lot of things in my life that were just gone. And everything everybody else was into at the time, there were so many barriers to me getting into. Because, of course, like we're in middle school, we got like school dances and girls are getting to be a lot more interesting. Right. And at the time, we had the oh-so-fun AOL Instant Messenger. Okay. So yeah. like that was the way my peers connected. Right. Well, we didn't have software like I do now where I can magnify my own screen and uh, see things. So I'm having to like have conversations with people just sending them a message. I can't read what you're saying. Please enlarge. Oh, so and you the, increase the font? Yeah, I'm asking other to? people to increase their font. And then they're maybe increasing it, but I still can't see it. I'm like, bigger, bigger, bigger. Wow. Great way to start a uh, <laughs> right. any conversation is five minutes of okay. Let's adjust the, your font, right? Yeah, uh, to meet my needs, so I can start awkwardly flirting with you, right? Yeah. So I mean, there was a lot of barriers for me to adjust to anything my peers were doing, and I honestly didn't have the answers at the time because right. it was a whole new thing for me, right? And did you were you able to? To be honest, it, with the, the emotional impact that it was having, a relational impact, did you have a place to go with that? Or were you, was that more internalized at I, that time? Or I wish I did. Yeah. I, I was in a lot of therapy because after the hysterical blindness, false diagnosis, yeah. I had been in therapy. And the big thing was I didn't trust anybody. Right. I didn't trust that anybody had my best interest at heart because I really felt for the traumatic six months, right? nobody had my back. Yeah. So uh, it was difficult. None of my peers really understood. Yeah. And I mean, you're st- sitting right across from me. At first look, I don't look like I have any sort of impairment. Uh, so there was a lot of people who did kind of jump on that bandwagon of downplaying what my disability right. is or not believing it because visibly right. you can't see nothing right. wrong. 
And how did it impact? I, know, I would imagine you had you're 12 years old. You kind of have buddies and stuff. You're playing baseball, and and how did it impact your your kind of your male friendship circle and their sense of you being part of the gang and and all that? Well, I did lose a very close friend because there was a lot of things going on, uh, and then I was making new friends and. That new friend group wasn't necessarily the athletic friend group because I couldn't okay. necessarily do that. My school actually refused to let me participate in gym class. They were too afraid that me and my vision, I would get hurt. So in my IEP, they said he's exempt from phys ed, which phys ed was linked to health class, so I got exempt from that too. Right. Uh, so I didn't get to do a lot of sports at the time, and... Uh, I found my own way around that, yeah, because that was something I wanted, but others wouldn't let me. Yeah, and then you did, eventually go to the mat, right? Yep, I, I joined the uh, middle school wrestling team uh, and okay. ended up continuing that through high school. But that in itself was a huge challenge. Yeah, because at times uh, I had a, I had some great assistant coaches. I did not have a great head coach. Okay. Uh, my my peers did not necessarily like me. And one of the reasons was is they didn't want to get beat by the blind kid. They didn't want to look bad uh, going up against me. So and, it's, it's casted as it's mm-hmm. inferior. So then if I get beat by that inferior man, mm-hmm. then somehow that makes me... I, I, I was the low bar that my coach mm-hmm. liked to set. Yeah. And there was so much ridicule that I would get Yeah, of my physical strength was uh, costed to the R word. Uh, it was called, uh, I hate to say it, but I'm going to say it for yeah. purpose of impact. My coach would refer to me as retard strength because I had an exceptionally strong grip I had locks that people could not get out of, and that's what he accosted it to. It was not that I was just a strong kid. It was right. so he attributed it to something like that, yeah, rather than making it a negative. Right. And I, I really felt like I was that low bar that he would set. And the truth was, I was, I was good. Yeah, I had right. a lot of talent. I was varsity. I excelled in a lot of tournaments. Had a varsity right. jacket decked out in medals. Right. But on my team, I truly felt like I was an outcast. Right. So you end up kind of being seen through this lens of your disability and your identity. Others are creating an identity for you that you're trying to like almost like escape and shed. I, I hated the fact that I was blind. Yeah. I refused to use my cane for many years. I did not actually start using it until... Uh, Around the time I turned 21, uh, because my cane really felt like I'm advertising my vulnerability. Right. If I didn't have my cane, I could fake it. I could get by. Right. Until I had to read something, I, I could manipulate right. my way around. I could pretend to be like everybody else. So is there something about your masculine identity that, that kind of says, I don't want to project that there's something like I have a vulnerability, so I want to pretend or act as though I'm invulnerable or I'm a capable man. Well, 
I was always taught of like guys don't show weakness. Right. And I really felt with my cane. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. literally waving the white <laughs> stick. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's out there. Everybody knows my weakness. Right. And oftentimes they don't actually know it. They're assuming much greater. Right. Uh, and often when I talk about myself, which I appreciate that you brought up some of those other factors of myself with my comedy, being right. a parent, sure, sure. my work, yeah. because so often I feel my vision is the only identity right. people see. Right. That's that's tragic. And so I would imagine your work with other other men who struggle with disabilities. I mean, you think of <clears throat> traditional masculinity is kind of like prizing yourself on rugged individualism, independence, um, not asking for help. Oh, and so, I- then, <laughs> so then what do you see your, like yourself as well as other men that you've worked with that uh, kind of not only are you wrestling with a disability, but you're wrestling with your manhood in some ways, I would imagine. Yep. Uh, I, I love that you brought up asking for help. Because yeah. that is sometimes a trigger for me. Okay. Because like growing up, I was always told, you need to be more independent. You need to do this on your own. Right. And that's what I was taught at a very young age. And then as soon as my disability became known, it was always, you need to ask for help. So I didn't know like which direction to go. I'm like, you're telling me to do the opposite all of a sudden. And I really felt that asking for help was, again, a weakness. Right. It was me kind of throwing that masculinity away. Oh, wow. Uh, So that's something I've definitely worked with individuals with in my career is accepting the fact that when you don't ask for help, the only person you're really hurting is yourself. Right. Uh, And there's no weakness in asking for help. It seems like you actually gain strength by asking for help, that it's by denying, denying that you don't need help, that there's that there's kind of a succumbing to living a, a lesser life, um, a, a more troubled life if you can't do that. Well, and, and and truly, when you don't ask for help, the only person you're really hurting is yourself. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, there are people that like to ask for help that take it too far. <laughs> so. Uh, and I, I, I've seen that a lot, and I always encourage people of like, n- truly know what your barriers are, and push those barriers when you can, you know, because right. you need to have that opportunity to grow. Right. But when you push on that barrier and it pushes back, that's when it's a good idea to get a second pair of hands. Yeah, I would imagine just like in anything, there's a there's a balance there, you know, with. Um, if you get too needy with some kind of disability and you're not trying to be autonomous in a way that really can help you, um, that can be a problem. And then there can be a problem on the other end of the continuum of trying to do be too independent and trying to find worse that sweet spot f- for for you. Oh, uh, and I mean that's that's the story of my life. Of, <laughs> where's that sweet spot? You know, yeah, where, where's that sweet spot? Am I asking for too much? Yeah, or Am I struggling too much? Yeah. So you're there's probably tension in that that you probably kind of have to get used to carrying. And just ne- about every relationship. Yeah. 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 So in your in your work with other men, I mean, there's just there's just an array of disabilities out there. And I would so I'm wondering if there's anything that you see unique 
you know, in terms of people's <laughs> struggle with masculinity, I think of um, physical disabilities that are different than, say, blindness, where someone loses their ability to walk or something like that, and maybe they were a prized athlete and and um, their identity was defined by that. So what kinds of things do you sometimes see people struggling with? Yeah, I'd say a lot of my work, especially with youth, was really focused on either blindness specifically or with individuals with invisible disabilities, learning disabilities, cognitive impairments, okay. emotional impairments. And really the biggest thing was overcoming that pride barrier of them not wanting to feel weak, them not wanting to be set aside for by a negative reason. Right. So there was often a lot of aggressiveness in people trying to fight back, trying to overcompensate. Over- uh, so this perceived sense of weakness, if I can... Be aggressive, then maybe that will overcorrect or hide it or definitely something I've seen a lot uh, of a way of counteracting it. Okay, Uh, uh, nobody can help me if I push everybody away, type thing. Okay, Uh, and that's definitely something I've noticed. But disability is such a wide spectrum, right? And everybody's going on different journeys. Uh, mine was an acquired disability, so I had lived a completely different life for years, and it really is going through these stages of grief. Right. So it's meeting yeah. that person where they're at. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I had um, two <clears throat> two friends in high school, acquaintances, friends. Um, both of them had tragic accidents and were paraplegic, and they had a completely opposing responses. One of them just, you know, died a slow death in terms of a spiritual relational death. He's kind of stayed in his chair, just got into drugs and wouldn't ask for help and wouldn't and then he ended up passing away in his like early thirties, I think it was. And then another friend had a completely opposite and he just recently um, completed the Boston Marathon with a, kind of the wheelchair race guys, um, travels and he's married and has kids and just lives a thriving life. And so it's kind of like those two experiences I had of this person that just never adapted or accepted and this other person that says, hey, I'm going to live a full life. And, and you know, when it comes to a disability, there's a lot of internal ableism that happens to an individual when you interact with... Explain that, internal ableism. Okay, so when you're interacting with the community and you're feeling ableist views of negativity towards your disability, of people's assumptions, people's views that are really putting you down, there are individuals with disabilities that will start to believe that themselves. Okay. So they internalize internalize those ableist views. And I mean, that's really common in our culture of how disability has been portrayed and represented for so long of it's such a negative thing. It is one of the worst things that could happen to somebody. Mm -hmm. So there are people that they crumble underneath that. Right. Uh, I often use an analogy and please censor me if I know what I say, but uh, shit happens. Yeah. You either roll in it or you roll with it. Yeah. And I don't like smelling like shit, so I kept rolling <laughs> with it. Uh, but it definitely does have a lot of weight, and so often just 
one disability can instantly compound a joke I often make is it's a buy one, get a dozen free deals. Right. Because you add in depression, you add in anxiety, sometimes paranoia of like, are people looking at me right now? Right. What are others thinking? It all builds up on you. So there's a lot of mental health that builds onto any physical disability okay. or any other disability because you're so worried about how everybody else is right. reacting because you feel like an outlier. Are there unique stigmas for that's different for males versus females, or is, there, is it more universal as uh, you would see it? And I'm just wondering. Sometimes I'm always curious about <clears throat> gendered uniqueness, um, and I'm wondering if males have a specialized stigma that they wrestle with 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 society. Oh, um, I mean, I have a young daughter. When I'm walking her with my stroll with her stroller, and I have my cane out, okay, it is. Very interesting how many people come up to me and are like, are you guys okay? Because they really see that as me being incapable of caring for my daughter. Oh. Uh, I, I think with stigmas is like my abilities to do things. Like People don't often think of me when they're like, oh, I need help building a fence. Oh, I need to do this. Because they see that disability as less capable of doing those things. Uh, which... Let's be honest. I, I have built a fence before. It was not straight. <laughs> it still stands. Go over the property line accidentally, or <laughs> there's an apartment behind us. I don't think they, okay. they'll notice a couple inches here. <laughs> okay, yeah. but I, I mean, look, I do have barriers, but I think a lot of views are seen as worse than I. I, th- I mean, I'm going to try to say this in a way, and you can correct me if I'm not being sensitive to it, but. Um, I think that for um, some of us who don't aren't born with a disability or develop a disability, the aging process is a slow disability. Oh, oh very much so. And I just wonder if there's any, not that people with dis- disabilities age better because they're forced to accept that my body is not always going to work the other way. But for me, <clears throat> I mean, I just had a knee replacement, you know, and I used to, you know, I competed in baseball in college and such. And so my, I wrestle with my slow aging process and how my body just doesn't serve me like it used to. <laughs> this is actually something I, I talk about quite okay. frequently in some of my lectures is uh, the aging population. Right. Like my grandmother's memory is going, her knees yeah. are hurting, and she just counts it to old age. But really, if you look at the Americans with Disabilities Act and their definition of a disability, right. it's a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. And as you are aging, I hate to break it to you, but <laughs> if your knee's not working properly, there's probably a physical impairment that's substantially limiting one or more major life activities. It's disabilities. And I think the one thing that helps that might help me in that aging process is I'm already through that stage of grief. Yeah. I've accepted it and I know how to use the resources, how to ask for the accommodations, not be ashamed of it, which I think a lot of people, when those do start come through and you're in those earlier stages of grief related to a disability... Right, and, and even if you've not even accepted the word disability, it is uh, a stigma. Right. Yeah. 
so much of <clears throat> male identity sometimes, again, if you take a more traditional view, is, 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 is our physicality, our bodies, and mm-hmm. what, it, what it projects. And there's not a lot of emphasis on what's going on internally. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm just wondering if, if, if you see men struggle with, with that, with that, you know, my physicality is going to fail me and my identity. I, I definitely see that uh, in my free time. I do a lot of work with the Michigan Blind Athletic Association, okay. uh, run a youth camp there, and really being able to give individuals of all genders, but especially young males, that opportunity to still participate in athletics, right? still do that physicality, because there's so much more that is learned through sports than just throwing and kicking a ball. Right. It's that competitiveness. It's that outlet. It's that leadership skills, uh, that strength of character, right. that accountability. There's so much learned in that. Right. And I think for a lot of individuals with disabilities, especially the physical ones, where they get exempt or removed or pulled out, they don't get exposed to that. Right. And that is a true hindrance to them being able to build their self-identity. Oh, wow. Okay. So I think that um, sometimes what we think is a, a going to be a major setback, a major blemish, a major issue, <clears throat> we don't embrace it as an opportunity. And I think guys come to the Men's Resource Center sometimes with like an addiction, which they consider that a disability. Like, how am I ever going to be normal? And so sometimes I tell them that the work that you do wrestling with your disability actually can make you a stronger person and a more defined person, a more rounded person. And trying to reframe that that struggle into something that can help them be um, a good person, a, a well-developed person. Do you, do you see that? Oh, okay. for sure. I mean, a uh, little joke I often make is... Having a disability, I'm playing the same game as everybody else. I'm just playing on hard mode. And when you're playing on hard mode versus normal mode, you're <laughs> usually quite a bit better at that game. Uh, yeah. So uh, I'm I'm doing things just like everybody else. I'm out there living my life, working, traveling around the city. I'm doing all these things, but with these additional obstacles that I have to overcome, my problem-solving skills, my creativity, right. my perspective is vastly different. Right. And looking back, I know I hated having a disability. I hated being a freak, a loser. I hated all the bullying, the ridicules that I've gotten. Looking back now, I actually celebrate that day I lost my sight. I celebrated it more than my actual birthday because that was the day that I Honestly, feel I was truly born. Wow! Uh, I we call it my blind anniversary. Okay, uh, just celebrated twenty years this last year. Uh, but I would not be where I'm at today. I would not have a lot of the friends that I do have, and I do have some right. truly great friends. Right. I probably wouldn't have met my wife or had my daughter. Right. Because uh, I probably would have been somewhere else doing something completely different. Uh, so I do look at it now as. It was like a destined path I had to take, right. but it took a long time to get me there. Yeah, yeah. I'm amazed by that disclosure and your your uh, orientation to that. Now is it's pretty amazing, pretty profound. Thanks for sharing that. Of course. Yeah. 
I think that <clears throat> some guys that uh, do their work with whatever brings them into the center, I say that you will probably, if you stay and work hard at, at this and accept this struggle, this human struggle, whether it's an addiction or some kind of violence problem or, or whatever, you can be actually more healthy than the mere normals because of that, that, that requirement to struggle and to learn things that maybe you wouldn't have learned and to go to these deep places that maybe you wouldn't have gone to. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a big analogy <laughs> guy and I, I often point out to individuals that diamonds are made through heat and pressure. Right. Yep. And it's through those trials and tribulations that you really gain the ability to shine. Wow. Yeah. I like that. So what what would you say to people say that we got some we got people are listening and you got a guy that's struggling maybe with some disability or struggling with just some kind of um human struggle that would require counseling and they're saying well I don't want to ask for help because that's a sign of weakness what kind of encouragement would you want to offer them Well often I can be very <laughs> blunt Okay, and good. I would probably I like simply say, if you've ever heard that phrase, the only stupid question is not asking a question. The only stupid thing you can do with yourself is not ask for help when you need it. Yeah, Because the only person who's really hurting in that scenario is yourself. Yeah, By not asking for help, you are impacting yourself more than anybody else. And trust me, as somebody who is literally waving the white stick in front of him, showing <laughs> everybody my vulnerabilities. Yeah. People suck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I deal with so many stupid comments. Right. Uh, but at the end of the day, those people are just faceless drones that I'm not going to interact with or see. Too much more. Right. They are just passing words. You gotta let them roll off your shoulder. You have to take that step because we as humans, we only have control right. over two things. And that's our actions and our reactions. Yeah. I like that. We say that often in group <laughs> to guys. Yeah. Like I said, I've been through a lot of therapy. <laughs> right. Well, you can tell. And I and I see and I see, you know. I have a lot of admiration for the strength you exude and the wisdom for such a young man. I mean, it just—it's pretty admirable. But thank you. Yeah. So your message to 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 guys is is good. I'm wondering if you have any other final words before we uh, wrap this up today. Maybe I'll end with a kind of. Funny story of how I came yeah, to that do realization. Yeah, a little comic relief uh, for us. Yeah, that'd so be great. I told you I didn't start using my cane until I was about just before turning 21. Okay. Well, there was an incident that caused me to use it. Okay. And I always hid using my cane because I didn't want people to see that vulnerability. I didn't want to be singled out. I didn't want people to know. Right. Uh, but what I started to realize... I wasn't as smooth as I thought I was. <laughs> so you uh, were stumbling around a little bit? Or yeah, what? so there was an incident where uh, I was uh, off at a friend's house. And it was about closing in on 1 o'clock at night, and I'm like, oh, man, I should walk home now before the drunks get on the road. Oh, boy. Because I was sober, and I was actually thinking, because I wasn't right. risking it. I was turning 21 in like a month and a half. Okay. So I'm walking down the street, 
And man, I really had to pee. And I knew there was a sidewalk on the other side of the street. Okay. But that involved me like crossing th- two more streets to get this was a side I needed to be on. So I just, nope, pushing through. <laughs> and I walked into a tree branch. Uh, and then I stumbled because a branch poked me in the eye. Oh boy. And I got tangled up in some branches, flailed around. You know how you look when you walk into a spider web and you're flailing around <laughs> right. at invisible crap? Yeah, that was me on the side of the street at 1.30 in the morning and flashing red and blue pulled up. Oh, boy. And we're making me do a field sobriety test. <laughs> yeah, uh, a cop asked me to walk a straight line. Uh, for real? I can't even draw a straight line on a normal day. Uh, and... It, he he's giving me all this crap, and I'm telling him like, "Hey, I'm legally blind. Mm. It's on my ID." And going, "If you're legally blind, where's your cane?" Oh, son of a. Well, <laughs> I finally came to that realization of I'd rather people know that I'm blind than assume I'm drunk. Uh, <laughs> so a demarcation at that point. Yep. <laughs> so after that, I started using my cane. I got to get away with being drunk at college all the time. I'd show up to class stumbling, and people would just see my cane and be like, oh, that's just John. <laughs> yep. Yep. Like, I got away with so much more stuff. Uh, and, and I really realized, like, yeah. yeah, that perspective changed, but I had some control over that perspective. Yeah, uh, I didn't have to take that time to explain myself in every situation. Remember all the buses would pull up, and I'd walk up to a bus, and I'd go, excuse me, what route is this? And they're pulling up at a university, and they're like looking at me, and they're going, read the sign. What, are you illiterate? <laughs> I'd turn around and whip out my cane. I'd walk back up. I'm like, excuse me, what route is this? They'd jump right up, and like, oh, this is route three. What route are you looking for? You looking for five? Let me walk you to it. <laughs> Which, don't get me wrong, I didn't necessarily like that added attention. Yeah. But I, it was better than the alternative. Right. And I think a lot of times that's the situation of that acceptance is better than the alternative because that alternative was getting me nowhere. Wow, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So in just wrapping up, I just, again, want to honor you coming here and sharing. And I I think we talk about, you know, masculinity is prizing courage and strength and stuff. But I think you're... Your vulnerable vulnerability and sharing who you are and your struggle is is your strength, and there's a lot of courage in that. And I just appreciate you doing that today with me. Oh, really appreciate. Uh, like, like I try to do on my flattening the curve podcast, yeah, is giving a platform to talk about these disability stories because disability, just like mental health, are subjects that often get swept under the rug, right. And I'll even add up to it, masculinity is often a subject that gets swept under the rug of not right. being viewed as an important subject to discuss. But unless we discuss these topics, we make them known, we are going to stay in a stagnant place. So I'm, I'm all for educating. Right. And that's what this podcast is about, is just revealing this, the stuff that men struggle with. And thank you for coming in and sharing yours. Oh, of course. Thank you for having me, Randy. All right, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to another episode of Revealing Men. If you're looking for more information about counseling, coaching, and consultative services, please visit the Men's Resource Center of West Michigan online at menscenter.org. Also, feel free to contact us on our website if you have questions about this segment, ideas for a topic, or would like to be a guest on the Revealing Men podcast. 
please take a moment to subscribe and leave us a rating so others can find us. Be well and have a great day.